My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back once again to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. It's really great to be here with you. It's cautious optimism season here at Transmissions HQ. I'm recording this on a uh, on a Saturday morning. I've got some coffee and I'm taking it extra mellow today because early tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be volunteering over at the football stadium getting into the vaccine distribution game. I'm very excited about that, and I'm also excited to share today's conversation. Uh, for this episode, I sat down with Detroit's own Warren DeFever of Third Man Records and the experimental pop group His Name is Alive, which has, since the mid-80s, released over 100 records, EPs, and projects on labels like Ryko Disc and now Unsung Hunger. Back in the very deep before times, uh, we're talking like 2006, David Bowie cited one of their records as a favorite from that year. It's one of my favorite things about Bowie, how he stayed interested in new music and also very vocal about what he what he dug. Recently, Warren has been exploring way back in his archives, sharing some of the stuff that he recorded to cassettes that caught the ear of Evo Watts Russell, who eventually signed His Name is Alive to 4 AD. I just ordered my copy of a new 4CD box set that collects all this stuff. It's called Silver Thread Home Recordings 1979 to 1990. Warren has also been tinkering and reworking a lot of that material. So it's like modern day Warren is collaborating with uh, with with a younger Warren on uh, releases like the Ghost Tape EXP and Return Versions. It's great stuff. It's all over the map sort of informed by minimalism and music concrete and deep blues sources and industrial sounds, new age, soul, dub, jazz, rock and roll, all that. It's always a really varied bag with his name as alive, which has made them one of those groups that maybe it's a little hard to keep track of what they're up to. Uh, um, but uh, man, it's made for obsessives, that's for sure. You can head over to hisnameisalive.com and Bandcamp and find so much more music. Warren is a music lifer. He's a classic record person. He also does archival work over at Third Man Records in Detroit. And sometimes he'll put something out there that the internet passes around like a treasure. Something like every Thin Lizzy guitar solo 1971 to 1983, uh, which is a transcendent mega mix of all that shredding that he edited together. We talk about that and a lot more for this particularly loose episode of Transmissions. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I appreciate all the kind words and suggestions that you have been getting to me via the internet, so please keep all that coming. You can find my contact info at Aquarium Drunkard, and you can find us on social media and all that. I'm on Twitter, and I've got a website. Let me know what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear more of, what you're digging, any ideas you have. I'm, I'm, I'm game to hear them. If you finish this one and you want more, there's plenty to hear in the archives wherever you're listening. So just click there and uh, check out shows. We've got a cosmic jazz pioneer Idris Ackermore way back in the archives. Authors like Jesse Jarnow and Eileen Miles, Tim Heidecker, lots more. If you enjoy our program, you can help us keep making it by sharing it with friends, posting links wherever you hang out online, or leaving a five-star review. More and more people are getting into the show, and we appreciate the role that you play in what we're making. If you want to take your support up a notch, you can check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. All right, let's get into the conversation. Here's Warren DeFever of His Name is Alive. Thanks for uh, plugging into another episode of Transmissions.
Uh, Warren, thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on Aquarium Drunker Transmissions. It's a real honor to have you here. Cool, yeah. I want to kick things off by asking you a question uh, that was submitted by- A tough our, question. A tough question, yeah. Our audio editor here, Andrew Horton, he wants to know what was in the bowl that you were feeding people out of. Uh, he was at a show in Chicago in 2008 <laughs> or nine on the Detrola tour, and he- Saw you running around feeding people with something that he describes as small and granular, maybe nuts or something, but he wasn't sure he wanted to eat out of the bowl. And all these years later, he wondered if you could tell us what was in the bowl and, and if he would have been safe, safe to eat it. Uh, that was weird. Um, I remember when I started doing that, there was a uh, an event at a museum in Cincinnati. I can't remember. It was maybe the MoCA or whatever they have in Cincinnati. And I had given a talk for some reason about music. And they asked me to do a performance. And I wasn't really, I mean, it was just me. So it wasn't the band or anything. And I thought, what can I do to make this interesting so I had this ridiculous rider that said I needed a dressing room that would be completely silent, that I could, after the talk, have a 45-minute meditation before the performance. Okay, and yeah. And so I had a list of all kinds of crazy things, and one of the things I asked for was a bowl uh, with uh, coconut oil, which is okay. kind of kind of solid. It's not like like, you know, like vegetable oil it's it's mushy and yeah. i can't remember what i was using it for at the time but i asked for a bowl of it and they they gave me a bowl and you know it's it's you know completely natural it's you know part of the raw food family and uh yeah the the show ended up being weird and then i i ended up walking through the audience saying you know have some of this and one of the things you, I've done a lot of weird shows, and one of the things you learn is if you try to give people in the audience something to eat or drink, they won't do it unless you have some first. Well, yeah, sure. So one time there was a show, we did a show in a hair salon in New York. I'm not exactly sure how that went down, but I had this, it was sponsored by like a vodka company that had like blue vodka, and I'd put it in a spray bottle so I could spray it in people's mouths. And since we're in a hair salon, it's a spray bottle. Nobody would let me spray it in their mouths. So I would be spraying it in my own mouth. And I ended up doing like basically the equivalent of like 50 shots of vodka that night. Oh, man. And I developed <laughs> basically a routine where you offer somebody something. They say no. I hold it under my nose and smell it, you know, because the music's really loud. So you can't really communicate. And then right. I'm like putting a little bit in my mouth yelling, see, it's not poison. And that's one of the things I, you know, come back to late at night when I'm laying there. I hear those words echoing in my head. <laughs> See, it's not it's poison. Not, it's not poison. Yeah. And then I do something S stupid. So, <laughs> so, so I, so he, I don't remember taking that on safe, tour. Yeah. But yeah, it was, you know, unless you're allergic to coconut oil. Yeah. I, you know, I, hearing you describe something like that makes me wonder how much you have missed live music over the last year. Um, or uh, how has it felt for you sort of not having that be a part of um, your, your life, really? I don't perform that often. I don't tour regularly. Uh, there's an annual event in Detroit called Noise Camp that we, we did sort of a mini version of. Um, mm -hmm. In 2019, His Name's Alive did two shows, and we had one booked for... 2020 that got postponed for 2021 so that's not that different i go to a lot of shows i see a lot of shows but i don't i don't like to perform too often i feel like it's dangerous i don't know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do something stupid or you know uh i'd rather like travel on vacation and it's more fun um, yeah without having to take <laughs> you know gear and and stuff with right. you i mean when you're doing a show you never know what's going to happen like sometimes we'll make like a cardboard log 
uh, and then put a bottle of Jim Beam in it. And then you're like trying to get people to drink muddy water out of a hollow log. And like, <laughs> you just don't know what's going to happen. One night, you know, you're playing a flying V and then you're stabbing it with the, the uh, tambourine sword. And like, you broke your guitar in the first night of the tour. And you're like, what am I going to do? You know? Or there was one tour where we brought uh, six guitars and during the course of the night of the first show, I break, you know, all the strings on all of them. Right. It's yeah. one of those things that happens. And I, I, you know, go to the, into the, the microphone and I asked, you know, is there anybody from the opening band? Can I borrow one of your guitars? And they just saw me break six guitars in a row. And they were like, no, <laughs> the audience is yelling, don't let them, don't let them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because so, they I mean, know I, the show's going to be over, or guitarless at least, very I, soon, uh, if they do. Yeah. I hate doing yeah. shows. I, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, which does uh, tie into um, one of the things I want to talk about today was uh, the, the, uh, the new record that's coming out. It's called uh, Hope is a Candle, and it comes with liner notes. And uh, the liner notes are really good. And if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a, a quote from part of the liner notes. Yeah, I'd love that. And this ties into my fear of performing, I think. Um, uh, some of my earliest memories are performing at retirement homes and hospitals for old folks with nightmarishly gnarled hands who hadn't seen live music since waltzes and polkas faded into the popular music charts faded from the popular music charts. I started performing with my grandfather when I was five. Uh, gross, grotesquely disfigured and skeletal, the elderly audiences frightened me deeply. I grew to dislike the post-show greetings, still today haunted by their strained efforts to speak, labored breathing, and pained recollections while relating their faint and fading musical memories. A once perfectly normal, healthy hand reaching out for a handshake, now barely recognizable, withered and frail, an arthritic claw frightening the child, already disoriented by the clinical and chemical smells, desperately trying to protect and preserve the aged, decaying, decaying flesh. I'm not ruling out the possibility that I may have some lingering issues with the horrific and traumatic images I learned to associate with live performances. That's in the liner notes. That, like... Yeah. You know, and then there's another one I won't go into now about performing at trailer parks, which kind of goes into a similar theme. So, I mean, yeah. So, so I, when you were, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the recent, his name, his name is a live stuff that's, that's been out, uh, are these, these various like archival home recordings from, from 19, you know, 79 to 86. And then I think that there's, there's been a bunch of different sets of, of home recordings. When you were at home recording in the, you know, let's say in the in the early '80s or whatever, you weren't fantasizing about playing shows so much. Uh, were you Were you sort of uh, no content content no. to be home and 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 sort of do it that way? Yeah, uh, recording was just a thing. It wasn't necessarily related to releasing records. Right. I didn't. I mean, I didn't compile them into albums. I didn't always give songs titles. Recording was its own thing. It wasn't, you know, a dream of being part of a music industry or anything. And then in high school, I joined a band of guys that were older than I was called Elvis Hitler. And we toured a lot and I hated it. We you hated had, touring with your, was your brother in that My band older too? brother was in it too. Yeah. It started doing really well. And my parents, uh, you know, it was weird cause you know, I'm a kid and everyone else is, you know, adults and, uh, my brother who you know kind of taught me how to play guitar he was like you know he wanted to get in on it and my parents thought it was a good idea to have him as sort of a chaperone but yeah we had yeah. a van that didn't have air conditioning so we would drive with the sliding door open and you're on the freeway you're sleeping in a van and you wake up and you're right next to like you know the, the it's it was just terrifying yeah that's, i was in, I mean, that I was in that way over my head did, I mean, so so you're describing it as terrifying. I mean, was it also a lot of fun for you at the time? Yeah, it was because yeah. we would we would always play with other bands that were interesting. I mean, we did shows with Pussy Galore. There was one show where it was Pussy Galore, Elvis Hitler, and the Goo Goo Dolls. And yeah, three three bands that I mean, when you when you say one name, <laughs> you think of the other. You know, 
And so, I mean, I did get to see a lot of things that, you know, might, might not have, you know, been, you know, touring in Detroit or whatever, and, or that I might not have, you know, gone to. Uh, we did a show with the Gin Blossoms and Universal Congress of in L.A. before, you know, the Gin Blossoms were big. I mean, it was, yeah. it was just weird. You, you, we played with Devo. Uh, we got invited two different times, uh, one time to tour with the Cramps and one time to tour with uh, the Ramones in Europe. And both times promoters canceled us before we, before it, we got over there. Apparently, being, right. having Hitler in your name, uh, they didn't think that was funny. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, I think, frowned upon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was slightly different then. We more we more often encountered people that were offended by uh, uh, us using Elvis's name in vain. Well, yeah, I mean, so it, and it was kind of a kind of a a psycho Billy band, right? Yeah. It was. Were you interested? Was, were you interested in the sort of American roots thing uh, as a part of that, or was that well, sort of the direction not, of the band, what, and you what, just found your way in? What happened was, uh, you know, because I'd been playing, you know, old time music, country, western, waltzes, polkas, and stuff with my grandfather, he believed music died in 1953 when Hank Williams died. Yeah, okay. That was that was the cutoff point for him. He's like, after that, it's just, yeah, yeah, nonsense. And he he didn't care about anything after that. So, I grew up. He had this huge book with like 800 songs, and and that's what we played. I was playing music before I really knew what music was. You know what I mean? Before I understood its yeah. cultural, you know, relevance or just, I mean, I just I wasn't connected to it. Like it was just something you did, like mowing the lawn. It was something you hated to do. You know, when your grandma is trying to teach you how to play slide guitar or accordion, you hate it just like you hate everything. And, uh, you know, it did have sort of a negative connotation. And uh, when I heard Rockabilly or like Elvis, the Sun Sessions or Oldies Radio, because I, I th and I don't really know, you know, by the time I'm 10, I think that's cool. That's what the kids are listening to because I'm so completely out of touch with reality. And it's, you know, that's the high energy hopped up version of, you know, music I'd been playing. And so rockabilly yeah. definitely was a thing that I was interested in and that didn't know anyone else that was interested in. And... Uh, in Detroit, there had been, you know, uh, sort of a growing scene of punk bands that also listened to surf and rockabilly. And I was meeting these guys and I couldn't believe they knew who Gene Vincent was or, you know, they could name, you know, the guitar player in his band, Cliff Gallup, or, you know what I mean? And they knew those songs. So when I got asked to join Elvis Hitler, it was because I knew what Motorhead was and I knew, already knew how to play like 10 Eddie Cochran songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got all the goods. It was like for that, for that I style. I couldn't yeah. believe there was a community of people that you know, uh, you know, listened to doo wop or whatever. Like this was this was cool. And again, I'm just a kid, so we're we're playing at bars. I'm 16. Sometimes the owner says, you know, you have to sit at the bar with me until it's time to play. I got to keep an eye on you. Other times it's you know run wild and. Detroit in 1986, 1987, you know, was, you know, kind of a crazy place. And you would see uh, Rob Tyner from the MC5. He was a giant. I mean, he was really tall. He was really big. He had a giant afro. He wore shiny clothes. He wore a cape. He was managing, you know, punk bands like the Vertical Pillows back then. So you would just see him yeah. around. And I was like, who's that giant wrestling clown? And everyone would get mad at me because I, I didn't know. I didn't have any of that information. I didn't know the yeah. MC5. Yeah. So you'd mentioned that your parents said your brother sort of had to chaperone things. How did they feel overall about the sort of culture that you were immersing yourself in? Uh, I don't think they were super into it. <laughs> you know, there was a point where I had started going to college and I dropped out because Elvis Hitler was touring so much. And, you know, they were very unhappy with that decision because it meant giving up my scholarship to Eastern Michigan University in, in Ypsilanti. So, yeah. I mean, it was obviously, I mean, my dad, I only ever heard him refer to music as noise 
and when I was a kid. And at one point, I you know, because my mom had two Elvis records and a Dinah Washington record, so you know there was like three records. And I asked my dad, you know, where's your records? You know, what where's? And he'd like, I guess I don't really like music. Like okay, so, but my mom, you know, she grew up in a musical family. She played the piano, she played the accordion and stuff. So, right. So that was her. That was her father who you had yeah. performed with. Yeah, John Kleshinsky, yeah. who was from Saskatchewan, moved out east to Windsor in Ontario, and then started a new band called the Western Airs because of all the Western okay. Canadians that had moved east. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're recording music, uh, on your own the whole time that you're in Elvis Hitler, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I started recording basically when I was 10. So these recordings go back to me being 10 years old. You, you know, I've, I've, I've been thinking about how, um, these, these compilations that have come out lately of sort of all this early stuff, um, you've gone back and you've edited this stuff. You've kind of, you know, unearthed it, sometimes maybe cleaned it up. Uh, you've also done remix work of all this stuff. How has it felt? I mean, has it felt at all like collaborating with your younger self? Uh, has, has, has that been a weird feeling, you know? Uh, honestly, the for the last three or four years, it, it kind of goes back to, to this. For the last three or four years, I've been working at uh, a mastering studio in Detroit. Jack White... Oh, uh, from the White Stripes opened a mastering studio in Detroit called Third Man Mastering. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons I got asked to work there is because I'm one of the few people in Detroit that had ever seen a mastering studio. When I was with 4AD, uh, Ivo, the guy that ran the company, really took mastering seriously and he really wanted the records to sound good. So uh, there was a $6,000 budget for mastering, just for, the, just wow. for mastering the records. So... I would fly to London or New York or LA and I was going to the nicest mastering studios in the world and working with older guys that, you know, Greg Calby who had mastered Born to Run and, and like Joni Mitchell and Sonic Youth. So, and I loved those studios. They were like the nicest studios in the world and they didn't seem like, you know, like, like a place where you would party. It wasn't like a rock and roll studio. I'd always hated the few times I'd been to a studio. So I really liked the mastering vibe. And um, I had done some mastering, you know, here and there on the side for friends that couldn't afford proper mastering. But uh, so I started working there. Uh, uh, they had, Third Man had bought a lathe uh, to cut lacquers because mm-hmm. they wanted to record live shows straight to acetate. Yeah, and they end up buying a fully professional model that you would you would cut the lacquer masters on for pressing records. And since they already had a pressing plant, it made sense for Third Man to be cutting their own lacquers. So me and another guy named Bill Skibby basically spent a year studying how to cut lacquers. We went to Nashville and uh, worked with some old guys. Uh, anyways, so. For the last couple of years, I've been focused on mastering, and Third Man does a lot of reissues of, of older records and archival releases, so i kind of been getting into this headspace of how do you approach old tapes? How do you approach someone else's work without, you know, uh, you, know you want to honor their original intentions, you want to look at the time in which it was recorded, what the goals were, what their limitations were, how far is, you know, going too far. You know, if if George Martin's son is remixing the Beatles, that's going too far. If, uh, you know, sure. um, that sort of thing. I'm, you know, not, I'm not replaying anything. I'm not fixing anything. Basically, I'm hearing these tapes and, you know, I wouldn't call it a collaboration. It's more like I can separate myself from the idiot kid that recorded these things. And I did have someone else do, uh, Shelly from Tyvek, do all the transferring because I honestly, I couldn't listen to how horrible most of it was. I mean, there's so many uh, recordings of me adding an extra harmonica to a Bob Dylan song. 
Like, <laughs> just like learning how to just just like record a harmonica for the most part. Yes. Or like yeah. me doing a guitar solo on uh, John Lee Hooker. And you're like, oh, I don't ever need to hear that. No one needs to hear that. So Shelly really, really took one for the team on that one. And I had kind of had it in my head that, you know, you know, for a long time that I had probably 10 good songs that I recorded as a teenager. And so I was like, Shelly, can you maybe make a little mark on the tape or a notepad indicating if something sounds sort of new age or generally has a lot of echo? You yeah, know? yeah. And she Those were did. qualities you thought were... I remember the, that I thought there was, so, there was a good like new age kind of ambient album in there. Yeah. And yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, that's wh- who were who were you know, you're playing in a in like a psychobilly band. Were you like listening to Eno and Harold Budd and stuff at the same time? Uh, I hadn't listened to Brian Eno until I had put out a record on 4AD, and wow. everybody said this is like Brian Eno, and I was like, I know the name. I have not heard him. Should probably check him out. Uh, there is one very funny moment where I was on tour with Elvis Hitler. We're playing, I think in North Carolina and we're playing with the band corrosion of conformity. And, uh, the guys from that band and, and, and the other guys now was came out to the van to grab me and talked about something or whatever, get high. I can't remember. And I'm, yeah. I'm in the van. I'm listening to Enya. Uh, and it was like, oop, better turn that off. Because I knew that they wouldn't think that was cool. Like, I was aware that there was a line there that you didn't cross. And I wasn't prepared to introduce yeah. that into the equation. Although, honestly, the minute I've signed to 4AD and I'm meeting, you know, the members of Dead Can Dance or whatever. And at some point we're playing a show together and I'm in a van with uh, Brendan and Lisa from Dead Can Dance. I want to play them Merzbau and Masana and like the guys, you got to hear this because I'm pretty sure you've not, you're not familiar with this music. You should check it out. And they were not interested. Oh, really? It turns out I was wrong. And I, I, I feel yeah. like the initial instinct of corrosion of conformity does not want to hear Enya before Enya. they go on is probably should have, I should have stuck with that because that's, <laughs> I was right. Well, you're, you, you know, your discography with His Name is Alive, it is all over the the map. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. Um, but uh, I've heard that. But it's, but, it, but it's all over the place. And, and uh, I'm not good I, at I want... anything. If there was something <laughs> I thought I was good at, if there was like one thing that I did that I could make money doing, I would just do that. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, you're, you're, you're mastering these days. So you're, so that's, that's partially true, but still putting out fascinating and fantastic records along the way. In um, the year 2020, despite taking a three month break, uh, people have been buying more records than ever. And, no, I know. Yeah. Uh, we've, we did lacquer mastering and then, you know, digital mastering and mastering for vinyl and stuff for about 400 records last year. That's insane. It is. Um, it really is. I know, you know, you did the audio restoration for, I mean, y- your name ends up on all sorts of things these days, you know, through right. through Third Man yeah. and the and Detroit I, I Gospel love it Project. You never know what it's going to be, whether it's Albert Eiler, Catano Veloso. A lot of times they, you know, for, for just for lacquer cuts, they just send files with the matrix number, so you don't even know who the artist is. And yeah, so we'll so put just, it up in the studio and we're like, this is easy top. We are cutting a Billy Gibbons 45 today. This is unbelievable. Like you just hear the guitar. You're like, oh my God. You know? Yeah. So yeah. it is super fun. And there's just yeah. so many, like a wide variety of just be- between things the clients are getting pressed at the plant, which is such a huge variety of things. You know, the, the Philip Glass, you know, pressed a record there or whatever. And, uh, and then between that and the projects that Third Man does, it's just it's it's really satisfying to be able to work on so many different things do you is it easy i do have a lot of energy and i do want to do a lot of things 
Well, I mean, the records certainly, I think, bear that out. Is it easy for you to take one hat off? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in mastering mode, and now I'm, you know, recording a, a prog, prog rock record with my band, Since and now I'm, <laughs> now I'm stitching together 100 individual Thin Lizzy guitar solos uh, into an over hour long suite of incredible awesomeness. Does is it easy to switch between these these sort of uh, wildly varying modes? Mastering is uh, one of the classic arts. It is a it is a mode. It is there's a system. There's a history. There's a there's a rule book, and you want to do it right. You want to honor that. And I do recognize now that when I step away from that, I do feel like okay, now I'm in like crazy creative mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It requires I, a different approach. Can I do edits while I'm holding a cat in one hand? You know, that kind of thing, yeah. which I normally don't bring to the, the mastering studio. Why but, is mastering so why is mastering so mysterious? Uh I don't know I don't percent understand no exactly what it's it entails. So great. <laughs> and I'm not allowed to tell you. As an official mastering engineer, it's part of the <laughs> it's part of what I signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. Never say, never say what it is. Keep in mind, you know, when they designed, uh, you know, vinyl LPs, it was going to be 13 minutes aside maximum. Records were going to be 26 minutes long, and they That's were right. mono, yeah. and they didn't have a lot of bass. So the first yeah. thing that happens into the, you know, the late 60s is Jimi Hendrix walks into the mastering studio and goes, "Hey, I got a bunch of ideas," and then that becomes its own thing. You know, before that. Yeah. You know, a mastering guy worked in a very tiny office with small speakers in front of the lathe and basically cut three or four records a day. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix enters the equation. Now it's an art form. Now it's you write songs, you know, composing is an art form, recording and producing music is an art form. And then the mastering is a whole nother step. It used to be this, the first step of, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing. Right. And right. now it's the basically the final step of creativity. I consider like the the mastering engineer to basically be the, the Supreme Court justice of the recording process. Yeah. Yeah. Do you also master stuff for for streaming services yeah. or is yeah. it is it yes, you 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 do that and and the vinyl stuff. Yeah. Does that require you know, obviously people talk very, there's a lot of conversation about streaming right now. And I think that there's a lot of different <laughs> ways we could take this this discussion. You know, certainly it doesn't seem to be the most uh, equitable in terms of payout for artists. But in terms of sound quality, you know, um, well, you there know, are things honestly, like it's Tidal called, out there. It's called streaming because it's basically like peeing. You've, you've removed <laughs> all the nutrients from the, the the liquid and this is the waste this is the runoff once you've removed all the good parts that your body needs this is all that's left this is the stream okay so i take i take it you don't have the, maybe the most <laughs> uh, uh optimistic view of of how how it sounds but well, is it i mean thing. is it possible I mean, I, is it possible love, to stream i love listening to records i love listening to cds i i'm fine with streaming uh as long as, you know, that's maybe not the only thing you're doing. You know, like, yeah. I love going to a gas station and eating something that's a really weird flavor that I've never seen before. Or I like going and looking through the cooler at the gas station and getting a blue-flavored soda, you know? If that sure, was the sure. only... And it's fun and it's convenient and it's poison and if you did it all the time, you would die. That's what streaming <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You already mentioned that, you know, signing to 4AD and the the story of how you got signed to 4AD is is interesting because you sent the president Evo Watts Russell. You sent him a tape and he he basically told you, you know, like thanks, but no thanks, but you you kept sending the tape. Is that is that right? He he had some very constructive criticism. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things he said was, you know, you're a terrible singer. And on the original tape, I sang half the songs. And I was so right. relieved because I thought I was terrible. And 
I didn't have tons of friends. I wasn't playing the tape for people. I wasn't, you know, we weren't doing shows. So it was like a relief. And I was like, this guy gets it. And so I basically had worked on more songs, different songs, had been tweaking songs. I came up with a system where, you know, there's a thing called a noise gate where it cuts off the hiss, you know, when the music mm -hmm. isn't playing. And I'd come up with a thing where it rhythmically sort of chopped the music in and out if it got like in time with like a drum or a click track. Yeah. And so it sounded really harsh. It sounded like the tape was getting eaten. It was something I'd never heard before and it just sounded really broken. And I started doing that to every track. And at one point he was like, you've really ruined this. You've gone too far. But I like, you know, some of the ideas and, and eventually he was like, maybe I could use a song or two on a, this mortal coil project. Yeah. I was yeah. Like, cool. Yeah. Thumbs up. And then he started, he got in the studio with the tape and he's like, why don't I just make a whole album? You know, it's not that long. One of the things yeah. that you, you know, if you're listening to these records or if you're like me editing them and mastering them, you realize the songs are only a minute or two minutes long. So, I mean, when he said, I, let me make an album out of this, he had about 25 minutes of material. Right. You know, so right. some of the songs, because he had heard different versions now over the, you know, three years or whatever, he would, he put them on there twice, different ways, different aspects of them, you know? And so when I'm, when I'm editing these and looking at them, a lot of times the idiot teenager, that's, that's the name I've used for the artist who created these, um, <laughs> uh, was terrible at endings or in beginnings and, a lot of times, I will say 99% of the time you're hearing these songs, it's the first time I've ever played them. I, basically, I basically played them once. I wrote them as I was recording. So I might fix something where I felt like, uh, you know, two minutes in, I've lost interest and started playing a different song. So I will cut it there. Or... Uh, you know, in the liner notes, Mike McGonagall from Yeti Magazine and and uh, 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 Maggot Brain Magazine. Um, he does Maggot Brain for Third Man. Yeah, great, yeah. great magazine. I, everything. If you just had any everything that was related to Funkadelic, the world would be a better place. And I, I agree. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, a Funkadelic themed magazine just seems right on. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he suggests in the notes that you know maybe I just recorded these myself or there was another review that said, maybe I recorded these yesterday. And I mean, I don't think I could. I, I think, I, I think about things differently now. Yeah. Yeah. You like now, well, so, I mean so, like thin Lizzy, I, the second record I ever bought was thin Lizzy. And, uh, the first record was ELO out of the blue. And, uh, I've always thought thin Lizzy was a great band. And, I, I kind of recognized, again, with the Enya corrosion of conformity, you know, moment, you don't always tell people who your favorite band is because they don't want to hear it. The first sure. interview I did with a British magazine when the first His Name's Live album came out, Livonia, they were like, well, what are you into? And I'm like, oh, I love Jimi Hendrix. I love Eddie Cochran. I love Rockabilly. And, of course, the article came out and it says, I love Brian Eno and the Cocteau Twins. And I was like, huh. that is not what I said. I've been robbed. Yeah. This is not journalism. You call that journalism? I am so mad. Who's Brian? You know, I know the name. I should probably check him out. Yeah. But they did not. <laughs> I mean, to me, Eddie Cochran is one of the people that connects everything. To Jimi Hendrix, Dub, because he used a lot of echo and reverb, and he would turn them on and off at different moments. He recognized this is part of the song. Oh, sure. And so yeah, it yeah. became a, like a device. It's one of the instruments. It's one of the tools. You know, Gene Vincent might not have been the best singer in the world. He had a lot of echo. It worked out really good for him. Yeah. I don't know that he no, totally. recognized that as a studio tool, but Eddie Cochran was a studio genius and did recognize that. And yeah. Yeah. And those guys, the people who were, who were making those records in, in that time, you know, they're understanding the abilities of echo and they're they're you know pioneering exactly what you're talking about yeah it's like 
you can connect that stuff in the early, I mean, we're so when they, uh, uh, when they attributed your, your favorite records as, you know, the Cocteau twins and stuff, I mean, was that simply to just fit you more into the sort of mold of what, you know, how people perceived four AD? Is that the way you take it? I, I think so. Yeah. And they just, I mean, they weren't ready for this, you know, scenario where a guy was saying weird, random things that didn't make sense to them. Well, by the time you get to the mid nineties and on records like, you know, mouth by mouth and, stars on ESP. I mean, it's, it becomes very quickly clear that you're not interested in sticking with any sort of, you know, goth folk formula, you know, or dream pop, you know, you want to go all over the place. And well, and it is possible that, you know, well, I don't know if we had sold more records, I might've done it. If we had a producer (laughs) that was in the studio saying, you know, cause most bands are in the, are in the studio with a producer saying, Oh no, don't do that. I didn't have yeah. that. I was recording alone at home unsupervised with a guy yeah. later on who would just go through the tapes and pick the good parts. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, you know, obviously we've already talked about the different modes, you know, but you'll slip between all these different things, country, dub, AM, radio, gold, beach boys, soul, gospel, R and B, all this stuff. But back I then like I mean, you it. didn't have, you you didn't have anybody saying uh, you should pick a single style and and focus on marketing that. No, I That's you know amazing. I, I have kind of <laughs> occasionally harassed Ivo uh, in recent years. Yeah, saying you know why didn't you tell me that we should try to sell more records? Why didn't you tell me that when we're doing an album you should try to make it so people would like it? You know, well, why, people do like it. How but come yeah. no one said, Warren, you really, we should try to sell records. You know, like when they're taking your picture, you should figure out what you're going to wear before the day of the photo shoot. <laughs> I mean, has a picture of me on the front cover and I'm wearing a shirt that my mom bought for me at Target. I mean, you got to keep in mind, I live with my parents. So my mom yeah. is buying clothes for me. Yeah. It's ridiculous. My mom's in the next room. I mean, not the next room. There's a thin, fake wood paneling separating us. She's doing laundry six feet away. Right, right. Yeah. So the whole thing is basically a practical joke on me. Because I thought, you know, I thought we, you know, we're doing stuff. But it's like we had sold, when Livonia came out, it sold 50,000 records. At that time, Ivo believed that it would sell 12 or 15. Yeah. It yeah, was yeah, yeah. at a time when 4D was was very popular. People would buy records just for the cover. They needed to collect them all. If they had released a record of a guy hitting a rock with a stick, it would have sold 12 to 15,000 copies. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And But you, but this you, you surpassed I thought we that. were huge. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, thought yeah, I was yeah. doing something right. What I didn't know was, you know, the other bands on the label were selling 10 times that. When you when you've talked with him in recent years and asked him why yes. he didn't why he didn't push, what kind of response did he have? You know, he's not a very good business person. <laughs> he yeah. was yeah. really having a lot of fun, literally just doing what he wanted. And he was, and he liked the idea of you doing the same. It sounds like. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, I mean, the whole situation yeah. is weird when I look back. You. I, You've gone and done so many things. I, I mean, I, when you, I mean, I think we can all agree this- that the most important thing I've done when I die, you know, next year, you know, this year, soon, probably, um, that the, the gravestone will say Warren to Fever, you know, 1969 to 2021, uh, American, maybe Canadian, we're not sure. Uh, edited together 100 Thin Lizzy guitar solos into one <laughs> super jam. Every guitar when, solo, one keyboard solo. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's great. When, when you finished that, you know, could you still listen to Thin Lizzy? Did you have to take a long break from Thin Lizzy? No, it kind of created the situation now where when I go back and listen to regular Thin Lizzy, it, all, it always sounds fresh and new. Because yeah. the words, yeah. the vocals are back in and the choruses come in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not just the shredding, which is awesome. You're right. It's it's great. That's such a fun listen. Um, yeah. 
I want to ask you about in 2007, you released, um, his name is Alive released a record called Sweet Earth Flower, which is a tribute to uh, Marion Brown, the saxophonist who played with all sorts of people, you know, Bill Dixon and Coltrane and Archie Shep and Harold Budd for, you know, all sorts of labels as well. Listening through some of his discography, you know, it seems like he's a pretty varied guy too. Was that part of what drew you to his work? No, no, not at all. One of the things that, that that really made it easy to to cover his music, uh, as opposed to someone like John Coltrane or Pharaoh Sanders, or or Don Cherry, uh, you know, people whose music I absolutely love, but you, I felt like you couldn't cover Marion Brown. I got the impression that not a lot of time or money got put into those recordings. And that often he was teamed up with unsympathetic players or his records were recorded very quickly. And I felt like his records, although I love them, weren't necessarily the definitive uh, uh, version of that or that the record itself was 100% his definitive vision of those compositions. It was more in the, you know... uh, sort of like the generic jazz world where artists got thrown into a studio, recorded for three hours, and then they put out a record of it. Sure, And for me, that opened up the opportunity to uh, take it and and do what I thought was, and, and I'm not doing what I thought his songs should be, I'm doing what I thought his songs and how he intended them to be based on mm. his overall uh, uh, recorded output. And I mean, I would, I got his number. Um, Henry Grimes, uh, the bass player had done a tour with Marshall Allen and I had a studio in Detroit that was also a record store and we occasionally did shows and they came and performed at it. It was called Young Soul Rebels slash Brown Rice. And it was this really amazing show. And I got to talking to them afterwards and I, I told them I'd been working on this Marion Brown thing and they're like, you should call Marion Brown. Yeah. Also, as an aside, there was an amazing moment where Marshall Allen gives this beautiful speech about space, uh, traveling the uh, spaceways, uh, touring, playing music, just this beautiful speech in the middle of the show and asks Henry Grimes if he had anything he'd like to say. And Henry Grimes just said, a gig's a gig. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's one of the funniest so things I've ever I heard. I felt like both those things can be true. And, and oh, I really yeah, love that. Oh, yeah, no, so, absolutely. Um, but anyway, so I called Marion Brown, and I was like, you know, I'm working on this thing, and we were talking about music, and he said so many incredible things, gave me so many different, you know, insightful things. He, he was in the orchestra. He joined Sun Ra in the orchestra, moved into the house, lived with him for six months, never did a performance, never recorded. Just had to hear a lot of lectures, though, I'm sure. He did, and he he was basically saying, Sun Ra, I think I'm ready to perform with your band. And Sun Ra was like, no, you're not. And so he just, he had to quit. He couldn't take it anymore. He thought it was, thought it was ridiculous. Needed to go play, needed a gig. Yeah, that's the thing. You 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 mostly play piano on that record, and I read that he he had not doubts but concerns, and so he wanted to to really talk with you about piano. Well, and he, you know, Marion Brown didn't seem that focused on saxophone. Mm-hmm. He he wasn't like let me let's talk about you know my favorite saxophone players. He loves piano. That was his thing. The 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 way the chords you know, fill out the songs, the way that's where the composition is presented. That's the whole vibe. And we would often talk about piano players. And that was, that was his area. I mean, it's possible, you know, at that time in his life, that's what he wanted to talk about. Although, honestly, he, it seemed like he was playing guitar at the time. He had a guitar, um, I, maybe mm. he, you know, whatever, but uh, he wasn't, you know, he didn't really fixate on guitar players, but he, he definitely was focused on piano. And, and I've had a piano since I was a kid. I play piano every day. 
and I'm very comfortable at the piano, but I, I, I don't play it that often, like live, and I, I don't, I don't know why. Uh, Mike McGonagall has heard me play a few times. I've done occasionally in Detroit. There's venues with a piano, so I will just sometimes do a show where I play the piano. Um, and he's been trying kind, to kind of imp. Oh, he's been trying to convince you to to, to record to do that a stuff? record of it. And I feel like it's hard. it's not even music. It's just me playing. I just play every day. It's like a meditation. It's just like. And I think that's I think that's a side that people haven't really heard me do. But honestly, I'm playing piano every day. That's that's incredible. Is that you mentioned a new his name is a live record? What other projects are you working on uh, right now? I I've made this mistake before. And when I, I talk about records I'm working on in the future, I feel like it jinxes them, and then I sound like a crazy person, and I'm just talking about things that sound fake. So for right now, there's two records yeah. I've made in my life that when I was working on them and I would talk about them, people were like, why are you wasting my time with your made-up nonsense? One was, <laughs> I'm going to edit together every guitar solo that Thin Lizzy ever did. Like, yes. Why would you do that? Like, just like, why are you even saying those words to me? And then, yeah. Um, uh, the other one is there was a record. I th- I lived with Davin Brainerd, an artist, for for ten years, and there was some weird noises we were hearing in our chimney, and occasionally uh, birds would get trapped in there, but it didn't really sound like a bird. And uh, after like two or three days the sound started fading out and we're like whatever's in there is not getting out and we think it's dying so we know if it's a bunch of bats are going to fly out the 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 fireplace had been sealed up so it took a little bit of work uh we had a video camera going uh i had a football helmet we were wearing garbage bags with our arms poked through for armholes uh, we had big hockey gloves. We didn't know what was going to come flying out of there. We wanted to be prepared. Um, and it turned out it was uh, three baby raccoons. And they looked like they were dead, but it turned out they were alive. We put them in a cardboard box with a speaker up to one side that uh, was just playing a heartbeat, like a bass drum, basically, through a drum machine. And then we had a heat lamp on top. And then uh, within the, the first night, they'd all scooched over to where the, the speaker side was of the cardboard box vibrating. And then the next day, they were like chirping. And then since it's a drum machine, I started messing with the tempo and trying different beats. And I felt like they were kind of singing along. And for a couple of days, we were recording these baby raccoons. And I felt like we had locked into this serious collaboration, this interspecies uh, thing that I, I didn't think anybody had ever done before. And I felt like they were singing in time. If I changed the pitch, there was, I mean, the speed, there was tempos that was more, you know, comfortable for the raccoons. And I would try different tones and see if they would, you know, key in. And I, I really thought that we had a special moment. And I recorded it all and I edited it into an album and I thought, this is it. I never have to do another album again. Similar to the Thin Lizzy record where I'm like, this is, I am done. I have done yeah. it. I have really achieved something here. Well, when I hear that record now, it's called The Raccoons. It, I don't hear any of those things. It just huh. sounds completely random. It just sounds like they're chattering away. There's a couple different beats and it just doesn't make any sense at all. But at the time I was... Really into it. So I'm not going to tell you what dumb thing I'm working on right now. Yeah, that's okay. And I think that uh, <laughs> I think that what what I what I really am interested in in maybe hearing just a little bit more about is the feeling <laughs> w- while you're making something. Because I mean, raccoon projects aside, you know, um, when, when you're I'm working in the on middle these of- old records, I mean, these old tapes, I think, how can I do something now? I peaked when I was like 12. That was as good as I was going to get. And it, you know, it needed the, the careful consideration of a proper mastering engineer to, to recognize, you know, where the endings were or to clean up the beginning, you know, or to get rid of the tape hiss. Does Um, the impulse still, does the impulse still feel similar? I mean, do you still sort of feel like you did when you were 12 years old and you're, and you're playing stuff? I think it's exactly the same. (laughs) 
it's like eating, you know, or like, you know, when you're, you're drinking coffee, you're like, this is the best thing ever. I'm drinking this thing. It's like, how could I imagine like if you have to skip drinking coffee for a day, you're like, well, I'm, and nothing's right now. The whole day is messed up. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So like, there was absolutely. two records we did Tekakastikatol, which is a, a rock opera. And then the patterns of light, which is where I'd spent, you know, six months collaborating with the scientist about, you know, the particle acceleration. And, uh, so not, not really a rock, more of a concept album. And I'd finished both of those and I was like, how do you make an album again? What, what do I have to wait for a concept? Like, do I have to record alligators? Like, what is this? Can I just write songs about my feelings? So with both those, I felt like that's it. I'm done. There's how can you ever get something this, this good again? And then you just wait until you decide that you have found something that good again. Is no, that how it you're works? Just, you're just doing it. And then you're like, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm in. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I usually don't think about it beforehand. The, the, the rock opera wasn't a rock opera when we started. It just, it became that as you yeah. started putting, putting stuff together and you had those incredible riffs. Yeah. 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 Well, it seems to me like, you know, I still have some good ideas. I know I'm old. I've made a hundred records. I like to think about like Neil Young could still turn around tomorrow or like the Melvins and make their best record. Yeah, that could happen. That There's, very, that very uh, well could the happen. The boredoms, the, 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 their next record could still be the best one. You don't know. Yeah. Not everyone's yeah. like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, I think we've, we've seen the best that the Beach Boys are going to do. I don't think they're coming back. What was the last good Beach Boys record, in your opinion? Do you, do you, do you have? Do you, can you think of like one that like I don't, the last one? I don't think that the 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 chronology is important. Sure, sure. It's it's one of those things where you know websites and magazines they tend to talk about new records, and it's like you know there's so many old records you haven't heard yet. It feels like a new record, so it doesn't matter what order they came out in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that chronology thing doesn't matter. And I, I, I have to infer that the genre is a similar way for you. You don't really care about, about genre. I don't think anybody does. Yeah, that's a good point. You hear a good song on the radio. When you walk in a record store, when you walk in a record store, which they still have some record stores, you go in and it's not just new records. It's mostly old records. The new records are just a couple near the front. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's new, it's new to you. Time doesn't work. It doesn't have to work that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. I mean, just as evidenced I by think, the fact that you're making new records out of records you, or stuff you <laughs> recorded in 1979 or whatever, I think you know, that's Aquarium incredible. Aquarium Drunkard is one of those places where Lou Reed and Neil Young are just as relevant as anything, you know, that just came out yesterday. Well, I mean, that's certainly the way that we, <laughs> that we operate. And, uh, and Warren, dude, it's been a real treasure to, to speak with you and to get to grill you about all of these, these things. And um, it's been a lot of fun speaking with you. Cool. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the program. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Andrew, your Brentonwood LP and those copies of Hellbore, they're on the way. I mean it. Sorry for the delay. I'm going to get those sent out for you. Our art is worked up by Sarah Goldstein. You can check out her new interview with Eric D. Johnson of the Fruit Bats over at Aquarium Drunkard. Jonathan Mark Walls generates audio visuals for transmissions, and our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage, who you hear at the top of the show. On the way out, I'm going to start dropping bonus recommendations, sort of like we do each Monday. 
in our sidecar newsletter, which you can sign up and have delivered direct to your inbox. Head over to Aquarium Drunkard and, and sign up for that. This week, I want to encourage you to check out another podcast. It's called The Toth Zone, and it's hosted by JJ Toth of Wooden Wand and 111 Heavy, who's contributed a ton to Aquarium Drunkard over the years. It's a wonderful weekly show where he discusses a life spent playing music, touring, obsessing over bands, exploring record stores, all that. It's really witty and sly, and it's heartfelt. And James has a remarkable no-bullshit filter that I appreciate so much. It's great listening. And uh, you can find him over on Patreon as well, where he'll hook you up with all sorts of cool bonus stuff. I signed up for his Patreon, and so can you. All right, I'm going to call it for this week. Uh, please keep in touch. Thanks for listening to another one of our strange conversations for these continually strange times. We'll be back next Wednesday, joined by Shazad Ismaili, who has been involved with some of your favorite records, whether you know it or not. Join us then, and stay safe in the meantime.